Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, um, so we were talking about the idea of the sort of old tiny control group, which is when the animal's given a CS alone, and then the standard experimental group to the animal's given a CS plus, so that's a CS and a US. And the way we typically do control groups now is something that Barbara Squirrel come up with, which is maybe CS minus, CS plus, now this. I shouldn't have done plus, minus, plus, minus, plus, minus. Really, you would do that in a more random fashion. But what's happened here is you have an equal amount of CS pluses and CS minuses. Okay? So basically what's happened then is now the animal learns there's no correlation between the CS and the US. There's no correlation. That's what the animals learn here. Here it's though there is a correlation. It's getting that getting a lack of something. Whereas here what he's learning is it literally has no predictive value whatsoever. Okay? All right. So basically what the animal's doing is, is computing conditional probabilities. So the animal computes the probability, the probability of a US given a CS and compares that to the probability of the U.S. even no CS. Okay? Is the animal aware of this? Well, clearly not, but, but its nervous system is doing this. It's comparing these two conditional probabilities. Okay? Does that make sense? Because the probability of a, C of a U.S. given a CS, the probability of a U.S. given no CS. And that's what it's comparing. And the greater the difference between these two values, then, the greater the, the greater the excitatory conditioning. Okay. <coughs> On any given trial. Now, this is going to be, of course, the overall long more of a long-term look than a short-term look. So that, now how, how long and short, it's going to depend on the preparation, it's going to depend on somewhat on the individual animal. But this isn't just this trial versus the last trial, where I mean, when I showed the example just before, there were only six pairings, CS, uh, US pairings. It's not just going to be that. It's going to be over a much longer period of time. Now, again, think about this functionally, by evolutionarily, this makes a great deal of sense. The animal should be making decisions about predicting the future based on a pretty good chunk of time. But there should be, it should be the case, in fact, though, that it should weight more recent experience a little more heavily than it reads, awaits older experience. Right? So as time goes by, some of those items, some of those uh, events with the CS in the US, or the CS in, in no, or US in no CS, should uh, not matter so much. They should sort of drop out of the representation, have a little less weight in the, in the animal's predictive model. Because in essence, the animal's nervous system is modeling the, the, the way the world works, as far as the CS in the US goes. So that's the whole idea of that. Okay? 
Does that make sense? You understand that? Now, how long is it dependent? Like I said, how long that that window is? We might call that a memory window. How long that window is? where it pays attention to CSUS pairings and how much it weights them will depend on the preparation. So for example, if you've got something like case diversion, it's going to last a very long time and one trial will be enough. Right? And again, think of the biological consequences of a rat eating poison. Those are pretty intense, so you probably should pay attention to something for a very long period of time. On the other hand, you might have something that's a moment-to-moment -moment change. Um, the amount of food you get in a certain area, and it's usually the case with, say, rats that forage in a, in a patchy environment. They, they go to places where there's some food and then they eat it all and it goes away. Other places there's a bunch of food, they eat it all and it goes away. They should pay a little less attention to older trials at the beginning because, of course, when they first got to this patch of food, there was a lot of food. Then they start to eat it all and it disappears and they should leave for a while. Makes sense? Yeah, please. Can you explain please. that? <laughs> I'm sorry? Can you explain that? Yeah, so, so the animal's foraging in a patchy, a patchy environment. So that's a, anybody here taking behavioral ecology? Great. Okay, so <coughs> that may be an off chance at some of Okay. So the rat arrives um, at a certain place, and there's a, well, the, the CS in this case can just be the surroundings. Okay? So the CS is just the surroundings, whatever they may be. So we can think of a, of a certain landmark, okay? So like there's a, there's a stone there. That's a nice ground stone. And the animal now has learned, well, as soon as it gets there, there's food. Right? And we'll say there's 15 pieces of food there. So they have a number. I don't know what the pieces are. Just say safe argument. So there's 15 pieces of food by this stone. The animal should, and what's happening is the, the stone is predicting food. Oh, stone's good. I like this stone. Then it eats the food. Now there's 14 pieces of food, then 13. Then, and of course, they're not all going to be clumped up. They're clumped up in the environment. There's other patches over here and over here. <laughs> but even within these patches, there's going to be little areas where there's more or less food. So it's going to, as time goes by, while it spends the time in this patch, we'll call it, it's going to get less and less food per unit time, isn't it? Right? What we would call the, in, in, in behavioral ecology, we would call the encounter rate is dropping. Because there's less there. It's gone from 15 to 10 to 5 to now zero. When it gets to zero, you've had a whole bunch of experience, you rat, where this stone predicts food. But now suddenly, this stone doesn't predict food anymore. Right? It predicts a lack of food. So then you leave, go to another patch. Or if you think about uh, a hummingbird out in the wild, hummingbirds eat nectar, right? Nectar feeding birds. When you suck all the nectar out of the plant, there isn't any more nectar in the plant. Will there be more nectar? Yeah, in 24 hours or so. But not today. You, you drank it all. But then it's just nectar. So it's gone. You go somewhere else. Maybe you come back tomorrow. Right? So over time, in this case, your time, your window, you're going to pay attention to, you want to call your memory window, they call it behavioral ecology. Your memory window is going to be pretty short, probably. You don't want a really long one, because if you have too long a window, you're going to be saying, oh yeah, this is that place where there's 15 food items. 
but there's not 50 for lead in certain there's none. Right? So this can be a long-term or short-term phenomenon, this comparing of conditional probabilities. And it depends on the situation. Does that make more sense, Yeah. Good. This is really a whole new take on learning. This is so different than Pavlov. Well, Bob Rescorlet is a couch in the behavioral ecology terms I just did. Um, he's not averse to those kind of uh, things. He's just, that's not his, his deal. His approach, and many others, was, and uh, I should say it was this one, uh, revolutionary. Because it's not like the animal is a mindless automaton that's just being hooked up and reflexes are being rewired, right? Then it was actually making calculations. This is about representation. While it's pretty simple representation as far as you know, memory goes, it still is about representation, isn't it? Right? Questions? Alright. Okay, some other things we can look at before we get into some really good theoretical stuff. Um, when we talk about a CSUS pairing, we call that first order condition. Um, if we do something like, call it CS1 plus, so we do a bunch of these, that's CS1, whatever this condition stimulus is, and we give it an unconditioned stimulus. That's what the plus means, that's just notation. We train the animal up, we get nice conditioning, we do CS alone, we get nice responding, we move on. Now we do, we compare, we pair CS2 with CS1. There's no plus anymore. Okay, there's no, because now we're not giving any. We're not, we're not giving the animal now any stimulus. <coughs> now what we do is we test CS2 alone. So now we give the animal CS2 alone. <coughs> and what do we get in this case? Well, now we're going to see if we get a response. And if we do, we say we've got second-order conditioning. Okay? We've got second-order conditioning. You can actually go CS3 to CS2, CS4 to CS3. Uh, most I've seen is, I think, seventh-order. I think you run out of stimuli during a few, but it's pretty cool. So, And this makes, again, a great deal of biological sense. This is the kind of thing that Pavlov would have been pretty blown away by, right? I don't think he, he predicted this would happen. I don't think anybody would predict this would happen if they are a person that just says it's conditioning, uh, conditional redirection of reflexes. Because it, it, it gets to the point now where we're talking about um, a representation. Because the animal's now putting CS1 and CS2 together with the US. It's much more complicated. It's actually also quite a bit more like that. 
Now remember, these are not compound stimuli. This isn't CS2 and CS1 together for the whole time. This is CS2, simultaneous to CS2, and then CS1 comes on, you're the end of CS2. And they overlap a little bit. Just like you would do with the CS in the US. Okay? But again, I think the world works a lot more like that, where there's much more higher order things. Okay, quite you understand higher order conditioning. On the other hand, we can do something called sensory preconditioning, where it's, we reverse this process. So instead of doing the pairings of CS2 and CS1 first, the first thing we do is we do CS2 CS1, then we do the pairing of CS1 with the US. And now we, we And now we have CS2. That sensor precondition. And again, this shouldn't surprise us. If, if you teach an animal, and again, it would surprise Pavlov, it would surprise Sierra, but it shouldn't surprise us. Because if I help to show the animal that if I give it a light, then a tone, a light, then a tone, a light, then a tone, even though there's no biologically relevant stimulus there, the animal should learn that lights predict tones. Right? I think biologically relevant there are lights predict tones. And now when I give it a tone and food, <coughs> later I just give it a light. And if all the lights predict tones, oh yeah, okay, that means food's coming. Or horrible, horrible noises. Some sort of condition emotional response thing. I can start to suck the bark pressing shortly. There are so few CPR jokes. That was a They used to renovate the university right around when I'm teaching. <laughs> it's like, I swear, last time I thought this class this happened. In fact, we just stopped the class once because it was so loud from guys running on the roof. Back over in W200. So that's answer precondition. It's kind of the opposite of thyroid condition. Right? We have the same kind of idea. We're getting two, two biologically irrelevant stimuli that are paired together. The animal learns that. We're just doing it in a different order. <laughs> now, outside the lab, and I've been talking about this. I shouldn't be so excited there with the exclamation point. But we can talk about this when we talk about, like I said, we talk about behavioral ecology. We talk about an animal interacting with its actual environment, not with a, with a, a key light or, or a bar. Um, so there's conditioning in daily life, just among all of us, right? You smell food cooking and you salivate. If you smoke cigarettes, when you go to a place where you smoke, you get a craving for a cigarette, right? We talked with the shooting galleries and all, with, with, with heroin users. So, in daily life, speaking of heroin users, all the movie ladies know. <laughs> so, we get this, it's, 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 it's not uncommon, in fact, very, a whole lot of our behavior, this class of condition, a whole lot of our behavior. And if you sat down and analyzed it a little bit, you could probably come up with quite a few examples of in your daily life where there actually is class conditioning going on. I'm not saying it's, it's your whole life. That would be ridiculous. 
the Naval Operating Division, which we'll talk about later on, of course, are, are, are massive, you know, their whole life, but they're big parts of it. So it happens in daily life. We know that. And it happens with our dogs, and it happens in cats, and it happens with us. Now, one of the things, this is, we take care of this by using, uh, we can take care of things like, like, like phobias by using classical condition. So if someone is afraid of sharks, now nah, sharks is a bad example. Let's go with snakes. People are afraid of snakes. Some people are afraid of snakes. Yeah, look, if there's a cobra in the same room with you and it's doing that thing, yeah, that's pretty good. That's not irrational. You should be afraid of snakes. But if every time you see a coiled up power cord, your heart starts palpitating, that's debilitating. Right? There are people that are that afraid of snakes, but when they see something that resembles snakes enough, you get as much as a plate of pasta. They get kind of shut down. Or think about if you're afraid of heights. And, I don't know, you're getting a job as a roofer. Well, you might want to get over that. But there are people who are so afraid of heights, they can't stand up on a chair. Right? So these are, this, this is debilitating. Not, not, again, not reasonable afraid of heights. If I, if I put you on top of the building, you know, on a windy day, off of the you know, Sears Tower in Chicago on a windy day, and it is the windy city, you should be afraid. That's sensible. But if you're inside, you don't stand in the middle. My dad did this. We were there at the observation deck. And he's standing in the middle of the building, of the, the observation deck. But no, I'm not going there. That's pretty scary. That. <coughs> it's like that. Okay. And I'm leaning on the window. Like, don't! So that's silly. So what we do is the first thing you do is you teach people how to do relaxation. And I think I've talked about this. You teach people relaxation techniques. It's pretty classic stuff. So you teach them, you know, the old thing about, you know, uh, contract this muscle group and then let it relax and it'll concentrate on how that feels. And you eventually get to the point where you can get people, if you teach them relaxation uh, techniques, you can get people almost sleeping, almost on command. I remember in an abnormal psych class I took as an undergrad, uh, the prof was kind of an expert in this, and she taught us, and it was at 8 o'clock class, 6 o'clock in the morning, but she turned the lights off and had us do this thing, and like two-thirds of the class, and like 100 people were asleep after 10 minutes. And she was just, you know, you know flex your, your fists, now let it go, and feel what that feels like, and concentrate on that, etc., etc. You can teach people how to do that pretty easily. Okay? So you got that. Then you have purely beautiful relaxation. And what you do is you then build up what's called an anxiety hierarchy. So let's say the person's afraid of snakes. And you say, what's the scariest possible thing? Well, they would say, you know, having a snake crawling on my body. Okay, good. So that would be the top. And then you start listing things. What about having a snake in a room with you? It's not on you. Well, that's pretty scary. Not as scary as the snake on me. What about having a snake in a... An aquarium, you know, like in a cage. But it's not, it's in the room with you. Oh, that's pretty scary, not as scary as it's loose. And you go down eventually to, you know, what about an earthworm on the road after it rains? And then finally, what about a bowl of spaghetti with a sauce on it? 
And then you eventually get to a point where you get to something, and it might be the spaghetti and sauce, or it might be a ball of string or something that has some characteristics in common with snakes, but it ain't. It doesn't make the person anxious at all. So what you do is you show them the thing, let's say it's a pile of string, and you say, you see that? I want you to relax. And they've now learned already in a previous therapy session how to relax on command. Then you show them the pasta. They say, you say, are you a little bit nervous? Yeah, I'm getting a little, just a little, a little. Okay, I want you to relax. And they just, again, because they've learned how to relax on command, they relax. What we're doing there is we're taking characteristics of snakes like slitheriness and longness, and we're pairing them with relaxation. Relaxation being the opposite of anxiety. And now the next thing is like earthworms, right? Because they're kind of getting a little snaky. What do you think of that? Well, it's a little bit, I don't like it very much. Okay, relax. And you can do it. Okay, then you get an earthworm on your hand. How do you feel now? Okay, relax. Relax. Now the thing is, if they can't relax, you go back to the previous one in the anxiety hierarchy. Until you get the, they're relaxed, they keep moving on. You get within usually like three sessions, like three one-hour sessions, you can have a person with a, holding a snake. It's the power of flexible conditioning. This was developed by a guy named Volpe. And it's called systematic desensitization. And it's one of the reasons that one of the most effectively uh, treated psychological disorders is a phobia. Because like, you can just make them go away. Really simply. Really simply. It's quite nice. You can do the op you can also do um, aversive counter conditioning. On the other hand, you can get people that um, like things too much. These are people that are frightened before here. Now here we have people that like stuff too much. That stuff might be women's shoes. So you think, well, that's not too bad. Well, it's bad if it's a guy and he breaks into people's homes to steal the women's shoes. And there are cases like this where people have these that are called phobias, not phobias, and they actually aren't. Uh, they're creepy, but they don't hurt anybody. They, but they break into homes and steal underwear or shoes or something like that. That's why I stop immediately. Right? So what you do, you show them pictures of shoes and things of shoes and make them sniff rotten hamburger. Yeah, well, it's better than having to break into their house and get your shoes. And that works okay. For something that specific, like shoes, and you think, okay, let's stop pedophiles that way. Not as successful. Not as successful. It's been tried. Um, and this is, oh, by the way, this is, this is with people that want to be treated. There are pedophiles that are, you know, but then there are ones that are like, I know this is wrong. I don't want to be like this. Make it go away. Right? And they, they're either, you know, mandated by the courts to go into these programs, but there are cases of people that know that they're like this, and they don't want to be like this. Little on the other The other ones, we're not sure we them up, but, um, this isn't horribly successful in that case. We've got, why is it not horribly successful? I don't actually know. I have a lot of thoughts about this. A friend of mine did a PhD work on pedophiles. Um, and he said that you know, there's not a whole lot of stuff that works well. Especially not when you're giving them a picture of a child that's just a thing all over. Yeah, but then you shock their penis. Ooh. It's 
can't work. You no, and then, by the way, they're, they're, that, that's when they volunteer for that. Right? But you can also just make them sick. You can make them smell rot. Like the smell of rotten hamburgers is the nastiest smell. Rotting meat is a bad smell. Right? So you make them smell something that anybody finds disgusting. There's probably some website out there where people like rotten hamburgers. But, you know, it's some sort of pay site, rottenhamburger.com. The sad thing is, it's probably true. Yeah, yeah. So, would they use a person counter conditioning people that? Because you just described OCD in a lot of ways. Hmm. I've heard that. I mean, OCD responds pretty well to cognitive therapy and antidepressants. So, I don't think it's been used for this. The problem with OCD is that it's, and this gets more into the operative condition, it's reinforcing to get to check, even if, if, if the good thing happened, like this, the door was still locked or the door wasn't locked. So it would be hard to break that with hardware. Yeah, okay, so for the hardware conditioning, yep. the little process, if you get a response, then it's second order conditioning. Yes. What if you don't get a response? Then you didn't get second order conditioning. Okay, so does it mean that it's anything else specifically? No, it means it, didn't, it. Mean, it means it didn't work. There's sometimes where it, it usually does, second order, um, but all, yeah, it, it could mean that you need more intense stimulus, all kinds of possible. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Getting beyond second is kind of your stretching. But I've seen, like I said, I think I've seen seven in the paper. I don't know where you get seven stimulus modalities. Uh, flooding is a, kind of the opposite in some respects of systematic sensitization. What you do with somebody who has a phobia is that you immediately put them in a situation which is exactly their nightmare scenario. Right? Oh, you're afraid of snakes? Go in that room, or the door, full of snakes. Now, you make it full of garter snakes, not deadly, deadly culprits. <laughs> well, he died, you know, it's all for science. Um, this is something where you've got to be kind of careful with this, because what if you killed the guy from heart um, But typically, what happens here is the person is anxious as hell for a little while. The anxiety wears off, partially because you can't produce any more stress hormones. Um, and also partially because nothing happens to you. Right? Eventually, it's like, yeah, you know, I don't like this, but this really isn't so bad. So fine, there's 400 garter snakes slithering around the floor. I'm going to get through this. No one's going to hurt none of these snakes. I know they can't hurt me. And people's fear of snakes goes away. That's how you use pretty careful. You know, that's like the old, uh, oh, you know how I taught my son to swim? I just threw him in the lake. And sometimes they round no. Right, so this is a little more, this isn't used nearly as much as this is. But the nice thing is, the most common, or some of the, some of the most common um, psychological disorders are phobias. And they, they tend to be things like social phobias, fear of speaking in public. And public speaking is something that's really, you have to learn to talk in public. Almost any job you do, you're going to have to learn to speak to the other humans. You know, and unless you're, um, and you're not going to be at it, right? You can't try looking at your boss and say, yeah, but I don't give talks. Really? You don't have a job then. 
you know, so <laughs> you can slip, right? So the thing is there, I mean, you have to be able to deal with it. So if you get a job, you don't like flying, and suddenly you get a promotion and you have to fly all over the country, well, you better bloody well learn to fly okay. So the nice thing is this is actually, these phobias are really true. Uh, agoraphobia would be the exception that's not nearly as easy to treat. Well, the one where you're, you sit in your house and you go outside. Questions about that stuff? Before we move on to the... Okay, where are we? Let me that one's done. Okay, so let's talk about some theoretical stuff, a little more advanced stuff, a little more recent stuff. Um, so let's get my nose positioned properly. There we go. So the next yeah, three classes, you're going to find out that everything I've told you isn't completely true. Things are not nearly as simple as you thought they were at first, and they never are, are they? They can remember uh, during the uh, U2 tour, the Zoo TV outdoor broadcast. Okay. Flashing that here. This was a long time ago. Before, well, I would have had all of you were born. That is disturbing. So the number of pairings is an important variable. In fact, maybe the most important variable, right? If I give you 20 CSUS pairings compared to 10, I should get more conditioning in a group of 10 than a group of 20. Right? It might be the most important variable. Okay. Well, then I'd like you to, and I've hinted at this, but explain what's called Cayman blocking. It's called Cayman blocking because a guy named Cayman, uh, sorry, a woman named Cayman, a person, because it's one or the other, and I don't want to. Let's keep up with this procedure. That looks like this. Okay. Now this is done with CER. This isn't done with food. Um, the only way you can really do this, you can do it with food, but it would be hard to measure. So we're going to do this with CER. Okay, so we're going to train the animal up to press. It's a rat. It's going to be trained to press a bar. Okay, so we train to press a bar. Uh, the CS is a shock. It's the electrified floor, the standard CER approach. So the control group, they have no phase one, they sit in their home cages. Phase two, they get paired, it's a light and tone together. The light and tone together was called a compound stimulus. The light and the tone start at the same time and stop at the same time. Partway through the light and tone, you get a shock. Okay? Partway through, you get a shock. Then you test the tone by itself, and you get startled, right? You get a CER. So you get a C get CR. You get, you get CR. So you get a you get CER. So you get a CR, which means you actually get less responding to the bar, right? So it's less responding to the bar, which means we have more learning, which I know seems a little left backwards, but okay. Good so far. Classic, simple, straightforward experiment. 
In the blocking group, they've got light by itself and uh, the CS, which is a shrub. Get a bunch of pairings here. We're going to make up numbers. We're going to say we get 20 here. We're going to say we get 20 here. And then here, we're going to do light and tone together, just like this group, 20 more. Light and tone together. And it's not 20, but let's just say And then we test the tone by itself, tone alone. And what do we get? We, the animal sheep, push the bar. No CER, so in other words, it keeps responding between their ears and older. Or none or very little CER. So none or very little. Wow. So again, I want, before we go on, do you understand the experiment? Don't worry about the interpretation yet. Do you understand the way the experiment is set up? You're getting the same number of pairings here as here. So the animals in both groups have experienced the tone along with the plus the same number of times. Let's again say 20. The same number of times. So now we see that the number of pairings is not nearly as important a variable as St. Pavlov would have believed. I don't think Pavlov, if you gave him, I don't think anybody before came into this experiment would have predicted this would happen. What I understand from uh, colleagues, from senior colleagues of mine who were around when this was done, nobody really, people believed it, but they wanted to see it for themselves. So labs all over North America and Europe were, were replicating this, this, this procedure. They're all finding the same thing, but right? Everybody's like, let's try this. I don't think this is weird. No, it's weird. Let's see. And then you feel like you're right. So same number of tone shock pairings in both groups. The same number of tone shock pairings in both groups. So it's not just a number of parents. Huh. The tone predicts nothing in blocking group. Well, it doesn't predict anything extra. The light already, in the, in the blocking group, the light already does a perfectly good job of predicting a shock. A perfectly good job. The tone is irrelevant to making a prediction about the upcoming shock. It's completely irrelevant. Okay? It's an irrelevant thing. Do you understand that? The tone isn't adding anything in the blocking group? Because they can already predict perfectly, or pretty perfectly, close to perfect. When the shock's going to happen, they can predict it. So who needs it? It's redundant. It's ridiculous. It's outrageous. That's a Seinfeld reference that very few of you are going to get. But didn't you say that 
you're actually not predicting that thing, that, or you are predicting that something isn't going to happen. No, no, because the, 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 the tone does predict the shock. It's nothing. No, it predicts the shock just fine. Yeah, let's go back. Let's go back here. Okay, Light by itself and shock. Light and tone together and shock. Operation, the eyes of the experiment. The tone predicts the shock just fine. The animal doesn't, it has, but it has no extra predictive value. You see what I'm saying? The light only, only does a predictive job predicting it. There's an equal number of pairings of tone and shock, a electone compound in both the control group and the blocking group. Right? It's equal. But this, you don't get any response here to the tone, because the tone doesn't help. The tone adds no extra predictability. Right? Does that make sense there? Anybody else? I want to make sure you understand this, because it's a pretty cool experiment, first of all. Makes a great short answer question. And it's freaking brilliant as well. I mean, that's, that's really clever science as well. I mean, it just means. Okay. So again, same number of pairings of tone and shot. And it's not just a number of pairings because we get one group of blocking group where light has blocked learning about the tone. That's why it's called blocking. The tone predicts nothing in the blocking group. Well, nothing extra. It has no extra predictive value. It does. We can look at it and say, yeah, every time there's a tone, there's a, there's a shock. You're right. It does. Yeah, but the animal doesn't care because it isn't doing anything extra. It's not helping in any way. So for Squirrel and Wagner, these are older pictures. They were graduate students when they came up with these ideas. These are from their faculty, respective faculty websites. These guys were in their 20s when they came up with this. Um, came up with this model that predicts how learning works. So a lot of these ideas were, were, were floating around that learning isn't just simply, the animal isn't just passive, it's an active agent in its own learning, it's about predictive value. Um, that the animal, and you saw the thing on the score of control, so that the animal is, is, is actually making um, the calculations, if you want to call them that, of the comparisons of probabilities. All these kind of things started coming out. And there was a slew of young scientists coming out in, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, that were questioning the orthodoxy of everything. Right? So while many of their friends were out protesting the Vietnam War and questioning that orthodoxy, they were questioning the orthodoxy of learning theory. They perhaps were also, I don't know what their political views are. Pretty nifty stuff. And it's also cool to think that, to think about this, these guys were in their mid-20s when they thought of this stuff, too. Like, they were not a whole lot more advanced than you guys. Okay? And they're all nice people. It's great. I actually never did say to them. This is a mathematical model. It is so mathematical that it has pluses, takeaways, and um, multiply bodies. It's really not hard, okay? This is simple arithmetic. This is not going to be hard math, I promise you. But 
All that said, if you don't understand it, I want you to ask questions. Just because I just said it's, it's easy, don't think that, well, that well, I'm going to look stupid for my head, though. Um, well, you won't. The first time I taught this stuff, I, I, got, I, I asked my old PhD supervisor, Sarah Shuttleworth, a question because she, she was in that class with Priscilla and all of that. Um, a person in the class asked the question, I mean, I'll get to it, I'll talk about the question when we get there. But it was an odd question. And I sat there doing the math, I don't know what would happen in this situation. So I asked her. And uh, she said, well, I don't know either, but you, you seem to have them thinking in that sort of And then I said, I responded to her email, it's very strange because remember the time I heard a school of the question on me um, in grad school, you know, in the learning seminar class, and I got, I got one out of, out of 20. Like, you never got one at 20 in your life. And I said, I have the test right here. Would you want me to fax it to you? And I looked at it, and just a bunch of numbers I wrote down. It was like I was in that show Lost and just writing down numbers. No idea. It was like one of them number stations. I, she gave me one to be nice. Pretty, you know, one. <laughs> anyway, so don't feel bad. I had trouble understanding the whole point. I don't know how. I look at it now. Like, but if you have trouble, I have trouble understanding graduate school. Okay, so feel bad, ask questions. This is a trial by trial model. This model. So what it's going to do is it's going to see how much learning happens on trial one, then trial two, then trial three, all the way up to trial n. There are many trials. It assumes you can get excitatory conditioning to a CS, inhibitory conditioning to a CS, or no conditioning to a CS. Well, that seems like three possible states, so that's a good assumption. It's a good assumption. And it's all about what the CS predicts. So again, this is where the blocking thing being part of the uh, inspiration for this. It's all about what the CS predicts. Now, there's a series of rules, we can call them assumptions about the model if you want to get all mathy on me, but they're basically rules about how the model is going to work. Okay? So, and I think this is probably partially why I never understood this. I, I took learning in the second year, I didn't learn this well like model for some reason. And then we learned about a really complicated model called the Pierce Hall model that no one uses. And then I got to grad school and we said, here's the math. Equation. I like equations, and then I couldn't understand it. So we didn't go through these rules. So hopefully, this will help. If the strength of the U.S. is greater than, ex greater than expected, in other words, if the animal gets more food than it expects, or more shock, or whatever, then excitatory conditioning to the CS should be the result. So if the animal gets if the strength of the U.S., in other words, it gets more food and it expects to get following a CS, we should get some excitatory conditioning on that trial to the CS. So the animal is given, the first time it's given a buzzer and meat powder. What does it predict should come out of the meat powder? And the buzzer powder, absolutely nothing. What does it get? Food. And let's say, usually you do this for the sake of the model, it gets 100% of the food I would give it. It gets zero food, and it predicts, expects zero food, gets 100% of the food, it should learn a lot on the first trial. 
Does that make sense? If the strength of the U.S. is less than expected, you will get an inventory condition. The animal expects, now let's see, we've got a totally trained up and expects 100% of the food every time we give it a buzzer. We give it the buzzer, it gets 100% of the meat powder we would normally give it. Mmm, powdered meat. But it gets nothing. On that trial, it's learned, at least that trial, that you got nothing, expected 100, you're going to get some inhibitory conditioning that US, or that CS, I'm sorry. Does that make sense? When it gets less than it expects, you get an inventory conditioning. More than it expects, you get excitatory conditioning. You okay with that? Makes sense. The larger the discrepancy between what is observed, in other words, what happens in, in trial by trial, and what is expected, the greater the conditioning. So if it expects a, a zero and gets a hundred, you're going to get a lot more learning. If it expects ninety, it gets a hundred on that given trial. Okay. So the greater the discrepancy between what is expected and what is observed, the greater the conditioning. In either direction. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When should you get the most conditioning? When you What trial? Never. The last trial? No. First, it expects nothing. Right? It expects nothing on trial one, and it gets something. I didn't know Buster's predicted meat powder. This is great. So then I've learned a great deal today. So then wouldn't the third one also do the same because... A little less. Because now it's already got a little excitatory conditioning. So now it expects a little bit. And it gets a whole bunch, but it's... difference between a whole bunch minus a little bit to a whole bunch minus zero. It's still a difference. Right? The more salient... Oh, that, that's not the CSUS discrepancy. That's the difference between the CS and the US. That's the first symbol. The next rule is the more salient the CS, the more conditioning you will get. In other words, the, the louder the tone, the brighter the light, the more conditioned. Well, that makes sense. It's easier. You know, it's, it's brighter. It's louder. You're going to learn more. Uh, did Brown talk about the liveliness of the stimulus and his rules about his association? Yeah. Same kind of idea. So the brighter the light, the easier it is to learn about. The louder the tone, the easier it is to learn about. Now, you can take this too far and be silly. The animal can't learn anything if it's so loud that we've blown out its eardrums. It's so loud, the rat's ears are bleeding and it can't hear anymore. How'd that work for you, rat? Learn anything? No. There are, you know, biological constraints at work here, obviously. Or, oh, it's a really bright ultraviolet light in CDV. Well, that doesn't, it's not going to work. Right? This is within reason, This is important. If you have two or more CSs together, in other words, like light and tone in a locking experiment, their strengths are additive. So if light predicts 27 foods and tone predicts three, uh, three foods, the animal, when it's given light and tone, should expect 30. 
They're adding it. mathematical model of surprise. The more surprised the animal is, the more it learns. Whenever I think about this, I think of rats with little hats on, other little rats come in, and one little rat comes in the cage with surprise, home predicts food, or surprise, light predicts shark, stories. See, because it's the discrepancy between what's expected and what's observed, that's surprise. The more you surprise the animal, the more it learns. That's kind of cool. You can't predict surprise, man. You can't model that. You're taking away all of humanity. It's like modeling love, man. Anyway. Great criticisms of psychology throughout the era. But you can't do that. It's weird. Um, this model makes some really neat predictions. Okay? And in fact, I used the word groovy because they came up with it in the 60s. So perhaps they said it was groovy or maybe uh, I don't know, far out. I'm going to fire out of block. Where's the slope of the drop of the acquisition curve? Doesn't it? Okay, so the acquisition curve, drop that out. So, trial zero, trial one, so we got uh, learning on this axis, and we got trial on this axis. Where should you get the most learning? Well, the animal predicts nothing and it gets something. It should learn a lot. Now it predicts, now it, it, it now expects something, it should get a little less, and a little less, and a little less, and a little less. And it predicts the shape of an acquisition curve. That's pretty nifty. And by the way, when I show you the math behind this, unlike um, those of you that have actually have dealt with a little bit of sort of, say, population biology modeling, things like that, those models are hard. This is really simple. It predicts blocking. What does the animal expect when it's given light? Because first of all, blocking involves a compound stimulus eventually, so it says they're going to be added, doesn't it? Right? So it says they're going to be added. That's the first thing. Secondly, it predict it says that um, it's about predictive value. Well, if we're doing blocking, so our example was light then tone, right? So this is, let's say, light, learning about light. How much learning is left to do? There's only a certain amount possible for any U.S. How much learning is left to do? Well, almost none. So if this part here is light alone, how much room do we have? So it's still going to keep learning about light as this approaches this this long here. But it's also going to be learning about tone. Assuming these are the same salience, the same brightness, assuming the light is as bright as the tone is loud, they're going to learn 
then it would be equally salient. So that means half of this little gap is what the more they can learn about light, and they've learned a lot about it. And that's also half of the time they can learn about tone, because it's an active model. Then we get tone by itself, and it's going to be way down here, because that's all it's learned, that little tiny map. It predicts blocking. And the best explanation of blocking before the soil of Wagner was it was magic. I'm quite sure it's some sort of black magic. Or a witch! Weighs the same as a witch. A duck. Who are you so wise in the ways of science? I love that one. This predicts condition and admission. Remember we talked about condition and admission? We got a, we got a, a CS negative and we, we condition the animal. This predicts a lack of something. This predicts a lack of something. And then we put the two together in a, in a summation test. So we say CS minus, and how long does it take to learn about the CS minus uh, and some other thing together in a, in, a, uh, in a compound, right? We put those two together, and then we measure the amount of learning, like how long the learning takes, it takes longer when you have an already conditioned inhibition, a conditioned inhibitory stimulus. Well, it's an additive model. You're putting these two things together. It totally predicts what should happen in conditioned inhibition. It predicts what's called overshadowing. Now, what's overshadowing? I'm talking overshadowing. Overshadowing is when you have a, uh, a, a, a compound stimulus, compound stimulus, and one stimulus is more intense than another stimulus. We had a red light and a green light. We're going to flash, and then we're going to give the animal food. But the red light is ten times brighter than the, than the, than the green light. The animal's going to learn more and overshadows. The red light overshadows the green light. When we test the parts that come out alone. Well, this says you learn more about a more intense stimulus. Nice model. It predicts something called over expectation, which I will explain in just a moment. But except for over expectation, I, where I have to explain the experiment, does anybody have any questions about these things this model is predicting? So, so far, you should be pretty impressed with this because before it was like, I don't know, there's CS US connections or US US connections or SR connections or RS connections or SS connections or perhaps it's a representation. And now I've got a very simple line of, 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 of uh, arithmetic that can predict this. Okay, this is an over expectation term. So, we have an experimental group or control group. Let's look at the control group first. We get trials with a light and plus and a tone and plus. In other words, light and it's US and a tone in the US. That is not a compact. They're, they're apart. Okay? Somebody shocking someone outside. Horrible, is that? Okay, it's a lot of people, so it's either some kind of, it's some kind of thing, it's not. I'm afraid somebody's getting hurt, that's all. Angry birds lie. 
And I'm honest, I mean, you never know, could maybe somebody's getting hurt. I mean, we're all in here you're laughing about it. It's on the internet. It turns out a guy's getting killed. I thought I'd look. So we wouldn't all go to jail. I'm not really a hero. Um, okay. Because I walked over there. Um, again, not a compound. Not a compound. Uh, this is going to probably, if you want to think about this being food, go ahead, but it's going to be like, you should do this with sharks and it being CER. So is that like shark tongue Yeah, that's right. Okay. But it's not, yeah, and they're separate uh, parents. Yeah, okay. it's not a compound, exactly. And then I'm not thinking phase two. Phase three. We go our test phase, we test the light by itself, the tone by itself, we get a good strong CR, just like you would expect. I've taught the animal that light predicts shock and tone predicts shock. It should, we should get nice, good CRs through light and tone. In the experimental group, or the over expectation group, we get light by its light, just exactly the same, so light by the US. Tone in the US could be shock. If you want to think about being a piece of food, go, go ahead. And again, this is one of those things that flies in the face of everything that conditioning theory said until this experiment is done. We put light and tone together and we give them a speed shock, let's say. Now we have. Perhaps twice, and we can just say, let's say, twice as many pairings of light and tone in the US compared to together. Twice as many. Except when we test it, we get a weaker CR to light and tone. We get a weaker CR. Crazy talk. How can that even be? <coughs> this, in fact, was completely predicted by the model. This experiment wasn't done before the model came out. The model came out, and people did the calculations and go, Yeah, well, you know what this says? It says this would happen. And it does. The swirling wagner's stupid. Look, they said, Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Now, I don't think people would be like, The is stupid, maybe somewhere. I'm sure there's some guy somewhere doing it. You understand the experiment before we get into this? Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, well, wouldn't the weaker response be one because the light didn't fall with the shock, so there's less shock there. And two. What do you mean? You lost. Well, you you have light shock, tone shock. Yeah. And then you have light, no, light nothing. and tone together. No, light and tone together. Shock. Oh, so that, yeah, that means a compound stimulus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. a cool thing to understand here. So but the same number of pairings, sorry, more pairings of light and shock and tone and shock in this group than we have in this group here. Okay, so wouldn't the nothing be more because you had more time to, for it to like sink in? And realize that you've done Well, you had it more time. You actually had more pairings. This animal has got twice as many pairings of tone or light. So you can just got tone plus, tone plus, light plus, light plus. It's got twice as many here as it does here. You should get twice as much learning. That's all. Is the shocking density the same? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, assume all that's all the same across all of Yeah, because I was thinking maybe it's a rose, like the shocking density in the second phase, then you could as well get a strong CF because, you know, it's 
Yes, in fact, that should work. If you made it, and you're thinking, yeah, well, the heck, good actually. man. If you make this actually twice as strong, it will be equal. So again, think about this. You get it twice as many parents. In this group, that you get in this group, yet you get a weaker CR here than you do here. That flies in the face of everything it says. Number of parents. No. In fact, in this case, number of parents is more, twice as many, doesn't matter. Right. Any question, Jen, or are you just doing this? Just doing that? Just scratching? Okay. okay, here's the model. Uh, there's different versions, different places. This is the notation I use. Uh, the book is almost like this, but they mean all about the same thing. Okay, delta B sub i, that should be equals, dang uh, S sub i times A sub j minus B sum. Okay, what's i? i is the CS. That should be an equal sign, not a minus. That should be an equal sign. I went through, I thought I got all the typos there. Typos in math are bad. Y is the CS. J is the US. S is the salience. And it's C, salience of the CS. Okay. A is the value of the US. We tend to arbitrarily set that at 100. Just, it makes the math easier, so you know, you could make it seven if you wanted to. You could put an actual number here, so if you give the animal ten pieces of food, you could make it ten. It's not a problem. We tend to just use a hundred because it makes the math easier. And V is the amount of conditioning. So that means here, delta V sub I, that's the, that's the change, right? The change in conditioning to that CS. And V sum is the total amount that the animal knows. It's total conditioning. So delta V sub I equals S sub I times A sub J minus E sub. So that's, that's actually really easy math. Because, again, remember that's an equal sign. It makes it easier. There's only one takeaway. We do the math in here and we multiply it times this. It tells us how much the animal learned on that trial. That's all it is. What's inside the brackets? It's what the animal gets. That's A minus what it knows. That's the surprise. Right? What the animal gets. Minus what it knows, be some total amount of predicts. There's your surprise. Times how bright the freaking light is. The salience of the stimulus. <coughs> wow. And of course, these quantities are right. You can actually do them non hypothetically, you can put real values in, but they tend to be non hypothetical. So the, the salience values tend to range between zero and one. Zero meaning the animal can't detect it, and one meaning it's so bright that it's the brightest light an animal can detect. Like that. Past that, it's eyes explode. Right.
effect. All right, here's an example. Let's say a food pellet equals 100. We're going to give the wrap one food pellet. A food pellet is 100 foods. We're just making it that way to make the math easy, okay? Because it's 100% of what it gets. Let's say the salience of a CS, it's a light, it's 0.2. And again, salience goes between 0 and 1. The sum is 0 at the start of the experiment. There's no conditioning yet. The animal doesn't expect anything. So V sum equals 0. Okay? So remember, V sum is the sum of all the learning. V is the amount of learning on a amount of learning. Delta V is the amount of learning on a trial change in learning, and V sum is the total amount of learning. Okay. So for trial one, that's this again should be an equal sign. Yeah? Delta V equals S sub I times A sub J minus V sum. That's 0.2, that's how bright the light is, times 100. The animal got one piece of food, we're saying the food belt's worth 100, minus 0. It expected nothing. So now it's 80, or sorry, 100 times 0.2. 100 times 0.2 is 20. The animal has learned 20 things, 20 units of learning. Okay? That's trial one. Trial two, and that was equal sign. Delta V sub I equals 0.2 times 100 minus 20. Because now it predicts 20, right? That's V sub. 100 minus 20 is 80.2 times 80 is 16. The animal now learns 16 units. How do you quantitatively measure that through the neural system? No, no, it's, it's, uh, you would measure that by looking at responding. If I was to graph this up, let's do that. So he has 20, 40, 60, 80, 80. Okay, so in trial one, we had 20, right? 20. In trial two, so 16, so what's What's it going to be now? 20 and 16 on 12. So it's 36, right? So there's 30 and there's 36 ish. Do my best. Now, trial three. Twice on Going. On trial three, it predicts 36. It gets 100 again. 1,000 equal 100. It gets 12.8 more. So that's uh, 36. That's 48.8, isn't it? It's almost 50. So it's 48.8, right? So let's do trial four. So uh, delta V equals 0.2 is 100 minus 48.8, which is 0.2 times uh, 51.8. Two, yes. Is that correct? Yeah, sure. Two, eight, nine, one, yeah. So it should get twenty-five, six, one point. What's that? Ten twenty-four. Yeah, I think you're right. 
So now we add that on to 51.2, so that's 61.44, so that's going to be right about here. And it's going to be here, and that's going to be here. And just leave it on. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah? So the more trials you do, the more of it. Yeah, it has to. In fact, if you're, you know, just look at that mathematically. Yeah, it makes sense. It, it has to. It has to. It has to asymptote somewhere, yeah. right? For those of the mathematically sophisticated among you, they can limit this quantity as the number of trials approaches infinity. So you're going to get less and less conditioning as time goes on. You always get less and less conditioning. Not cool, cool. Or just cool like a pigeon. Yeah, there you go. I was cooing like a pigeon. <laughs> that's what pigeons say. When they were taught this, they said, that's exactly what I always was doing. You were just too stupid to figure it out. Why are you adding the trials here? Because it's an the model, and that's what happens on each trial. Each trial, this is, this is how much learning happened on this trial. Right? On the next trial, it learns a bit more. We have to add all those together. That's the total amount that it predicts. Perfect question. Good question. So you see what's happening here is you learn a little bit on each trial, and it just keeps getting added on and on and on and on. Now, what I want you to do over your break for, for Thanksgiving. Uh, take this out to about the 10 trials I grab. Just for practice. You can use a calculator. It shouldn't be that hard. Or you can make an Excel spreadsheet did for you. Or you can probably find a web app that does it. It's probably the Scarlet Wagner app on the, in the, in the iTunes store. And 45 Android ones aren't quite as good. That's the worst. And there's a Windows app for it coming out in 2050. And so both of the people in the Windows phone. Just take it to like 10 trials and graph it and see what it looks like. Because you get this beautiful, and also you should be able to tell. Again, if you don't look at the map, you should look at that. Though I know what that's going to the limit is. But take a look and see if you can guess what the limit's going to be. Right? What it's going to asymptote at. Okay, so once, you, once you've gone to 10 trials, you'll be able to tell what, what it's going to run out. Okay? Have a good break, guys, and I will see you. Uh, we all get back. We all reconvene after. Oh, and we made. Oh, I know last Monday, remember? Because it's Thanksgiving. Uh -huh. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, see you Wednesday.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.